Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, to everyone in the house, and of course, to those of you downstairs in Simpson Hall and online, Good morning as well. Hey, you've been sitting for a little while. You know, you have complete permission to just stand up and stretch because you're going to be sitting for a lot longer. Um, but uh, if you just want to do that, you feel free. Maybe we'll wiggle your tush. I don't know. Downstairs, do the wave. I don't know. Um, but you might need a quick stretch because that's a long time to sit, especially if you're like me and you're, you're just over the age of 30. Um. <laughs> Hey, uh, we're continuing our teaching series in the book of Romans, and uh, if you have a Bible handy, I want to encourage you this morning to turn to the book of Romans, uh, especially today. You're going to need to track along because uh, we're going to be jumping all over the place in the, in the uh, passage. Um, also, you can access the teaching notes, of course, to crosspointchurch.ca slash notes. Go there, and uh, you'll be able to track along there with uh, the outline. Thanks, Sandy and Joe, uh, for reading the scripture this morning. We miss you guys. Uh, I think the last time I saw you was around Christmas time, so uh, thanks for doing that this morning. Uh, the book of Romans, just a really quick backstory, and we're going to jump right into the text this morning, but as you know, the book of Romans was a letter. It was written by a man named the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to a church in Rome. Uh, this is a unique church. Of course, they don't gather in a big building like this, but uh, they would have had four or five little house churches that met in separate locations, and this letter would have been read to all of the different house churches one by one, once it arrived in Rome. And uh, today, we are in chapter 5 in the book of Romans, which means that we are one quarter of the way through the book of Romans. Woo! Wow, that's awesome. Uh, maybe by the time I retire, we'll finish the book. Um, it also means, though, that in the book of Romans right now, there's a big shift that is about to happen in Paul's letter. Uh, you'll notice in verse 1, Paul starts chapter 5 this way. He says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, okay? What Paul is saying right now, he's, this, is, this is turn the page language, okay? He's saying that, okay, so in view of everything I've taught you so far, everything you've read, I've got something else to say. Here's what's next. Uh, you see, because of the first big idea of the first four chapters of the book of Romans, which is something known as justification by faith. In other words, the first four chapters are all about how we obtain right standing with God. And Paul would say the only way that we can do that is through faith and faith alone. Uh, and of course, Paul has gone to great lengths in the first four chapters to explain that we're all equally lost. We're all equally broken. We all fall short of God's standard of righteousness. So we're all powerless. Every one of us are really powerless to save ourselves. But God in his grace had a solution to save everyone. And of course, he sent Jesus Christ into the world to pay the just penalty for our sins so that when we put our faith in him, we're covered. We are paid for. We are justified. We have right standing with God. And this, of course, is the big idea of the first four chapters of the book of Romans. So now, we're turning the page. Now, we're in chapter 5. And Paul says, since we are justified through faith, since this is true, the most amazing results follow as a consequence. He says in verse 1, since we are justified by faith, what? We now have peace with God. 
In other words, we're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer playing for the opposite team. We're no longer in conflict, at war, with the God of the universe. Yeah, and another word that Paul uses to describe this is, is the word reconciliation. And you'll find that in the latter two verses, in verses 10 and 11. It actually appears three times, shows up. The word reconciliation is a very unique word. It's, it's an accounting term. And, it, and it's another one of those big Bible words. I don't know if you've discovered this, but as we've been going through Romans, there's a lot of these big Bible words that show up, and you don't use them in everyday language, like propitiation, right? Redemption. Well, now we've got another one. Paul's throwing it at us. It's the word reconciliation. Well, what does that word mean? Well, essentially, like I said, it's an accounting term, and it basically means to bring into alignment. Maybe, just maybe, you've heard the term before, reconcile your bank statement. I know that's an older term for some of us, but you might know that term, reconcile your bank statement. So let me explain this a little bit. Uh, imagine with me a hypothetical scenario. Uh, I'm one of those guys who still gets his bank statements mailed to him. I'm old school, okay? And you might laugh, but listen, when the EMP from the nuclear bomb destroys all microchip, microchips in the world, I'll be the one who's laughing, all right? Because mine's on paper. Anyways, uh, let's say I'm looking up my paper bank statement, and I notice that I'm missing some funds from my savings account. And I'm like, what? And I start looking through it, and I realize that there's one, one transaction in there, a one-time payment of $2,000 to the International House of Pancakes. And I like pancakes, don't get me wrong. I, I, I really love a high stack with lots of syrup and butter and a big rasher of bacon on the side. But I cannot conceivably imagine how I could ever spend $2,000 at the International House of Pancakes. So what do I do? Well, I go online. And I start looking at my transactions online. And I notice that there is no transaction there for the International House of Pancakes. As a matter of fact, the bottom line in my account online is different than the bottom line in my account on paper. So I've got a problem. So then what do I do? Well, I call the bank, right? I'm like, how could this ever happen? I know Karen would never buy that many pancakes, right? So I call the bank and we sit down and we figure this out. And at the end of the day, we realize there is an error and what we've done is we've made the bank statements come together. We've made them match. We've brought them into alignment. We have reconciled the bank statements. See, when something is out of alignment, we want to fix it. If your back is out of alignment, you're, you're going to go to the chiropractor, right? If your wheels are out of alignment, you're going to go to a mechanic. If your marriage is out of alignment, you're going to go to a counselor. Where do you go when your relationship with God is out of alignment, you go to Jesus who justifies and brings us into right standing with God. He reconciles us with God so that he, our relationship with God is in alignment. And therefore, as a result of that, we have peace with God. Now today, we're, we're going to look at the text and it's going to talk about the benefits of reconciliation. So we're going to zoom right in on, on the text in the various different places, and we're going to ask the question, if we have peace with God, what does that mean for us? And so we're going to walk through the text one step at a time, and I'm hoping today we'll just simply discover three benefits of reconciliation. That's it, three benefits of being reconciled to God. So here's the first one. Because we are reconciled to God, we have all access to God. So let's look at verse 2. Paul says, we also, have also, uh, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
What Paul is doing here is he's using the language and the imagery of the temple. Of course, the temple in the Old Testament was that, was that one space, place, that one place in space and time, that one fine geographical point where God would meet with his people consistently. And of course, this would happen on what was called the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, on that day, the high priest would enter into the most holy place after he had cleansed himself and, and, and gone through ritual sacrifices. He'd go into the most holy place, and God's presence would appear over the altar. And as he went into the most holy place, he'd bring the blood of a sacrifice on the behalf of the people of God. He would sprinkle it on what was called the mercy seat on top of the altar. He'd sprinkle it in front of the altar in order to get propitiation or atonement for the sins of Israel. But that was how the people of Israel connected with God. Only the high priest could do this, and only on the Day of Atonement. Now, I wonder how many of you are familiar with the idea of the all-access pass, right? You know, maybe you have Netflix. I'm not sure, probably. Uh, but on Netflix, you would have what's called an all-access pass to Netflix. In other words, you have access to whatever you want to watch. You can watch it all day. You can watch it all night from any device. There are no limits when or where you have access to your Netflix account. That is an all-access pass. Just don't share your password with family members because apparently Netflix is cracking down on that. Anyway, uh, because of Jesus, because of Jesus, we have an all-access pass into the very presence of God. It is not something that happens once a year. It is not something that requires a priest. It, it is not something that's available to only a specific group of people. Paul says, we have obtained access by faith into this grace. But not only that, Paul says that we actually all currently, we stand in this grace. As if to say, we're fixed there. We're grounded there. It's where we belong. It's where we live. It's where we breathe in on a daily basis God's love and his generosity towards us. And I have to ask the question this morning, where, where are you standing today? You know, there's this old hymn that goes, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Are you standing on God's grace today? Or are you standing on something else? Now, when it comes to standing, I think it's important that we talk about the we scandal this morning. Now, before you start shifting uncomfortably in your chairs, which you may be, uh, I'm not talking about the moral and political debacle in Ottawa. I'm talking about the we scandal that's in the text. You'll notice something. You'll notice that Paul says, we also have obtained... And he says, we stand. That's actually very deliberate. One of the major shifts in chapter 5 is that Paul is now using the pronoun we. Okay, so if you read the first four chapters, he's talking about they, he's talking about you. But Paul now, from chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 8, it runs all the way through it, he just starts using the language of we. And so why is this a we scandal? It, it's a wee scandal because God, uh, Paul is now addressing the Jews and the Gentiles together as one people. He's using inclusive language to describe one people who stand together. Remember, I mean, one of the major reasons why Paul was writing this letter to the church in Rome was because there was this tension between the Jewish faction and the Gentile faction. 
And, and if you know the Bible history, you know that a devout Jew would never, ever consider a Gentile as his equal. Gentiles were unclean. Gentiles could not participate in the life in the temple. Devout Jewish men thanked God daily that they were neither a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So one of the greatest scandals of the cross is that God has now drawn the circle bigger to include both the Jews and the Gentiles into one family. And the reason why I bring this up today is because I think it is so important that in the day in which we're living now, we do not lose sight of this. Because I think most of us have sensed that these are very polarized times. And sadly, followers of Jesus are finding all sorts of reasons to disagree with each other. And yet we forget that in Christ Jesus, we are one people. And we all have access to this grace in which we stand. And we all stand together in this grace. So maybe, just maybe, we should stop building fences and we should start building bridges. Maybe we, should, we could use a little wee scandal in our own churches today. So that's the first thing. Paul, reconciliation means we all have all access to God. But, but what else does it mean? Well, here's the second thing. It also means that we rejoice in our sufferings. Paul says this in verse 2. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Other, other versions, if you have the NIV, for example, might not use the word rejoice. It might say we boast in the hope rather than rejoice in the hope, which is, which is actually more literal translation of the actual Greek word. But, but the reason why the ESV uses the word rejoice is because th there's actually different kinds of boasting. Um, on the one hand, you might know this, that there's, there's more of the arrogant, bragging kind of boasting that kind of puts you above other people, like Oilers versus the Flames. I heard it. Okay, right, right. Saskatchewan Rough Riders versus everyone else, right? Okay. Um, but then there's this other type of boasting, which is more like a, a cheerful or celebratory kind of boasting. It's, it's filled with gratitude and invites other people to come in and, and to share in the celebration with you. And that's what Paul's referring to here. Now, there was a whole lot of boasting going on in the church of Rome, and it wasn't good boasting. I mean, the Gentiles were boasting about their freedom in Christ. The, the Jews were boasting about their privileged position under the law. And, and Paul spent a lot of time playing hockey with people and, and knocking them into the boards and saying, listen, listen, you've got to stop this kind of boasting. This isn't good, all right? Because the way that they were boasting and what they were boasting in ultimately couldn't save them. So what does Paul mean then when he says that, that we should rejoice or boast in the hope of the glory of God? Well, remember that the term glory of God, it's, it's, it's a strange word for us, uh, term for us, but Paul's been talking about it a lot in the letter so far. He says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And of course, in Romans 1, he talks about how, how we've chosen to exchange the glory of God for the glory of lesser things. And because of that, we've, we've been dislocated from the life-giving, liberating presence of God. We've also been dislocated from our purpose and the way that we were designed but Paul is now saying, okay, listen, yeah, we, we, we've fallen short of the glory of God, but now because we're justified, now because we have peace with God, we have an all-access pass to God's glory. And not only that, we will inherit God's glory. See, there will be a time where, where each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus will be restored to our former glory, the way we were designed through the resurrection. 
And there will be a time when, when the broken creation that we live in, the one that is just of volcanoes and earthquakes and famines, the, earth, the world that we live in will one day be restored to its glory. And there will be a day where we as followers of Jesus will continually bask in the glorious presence of God in the new heaven and earth. This, Paul says, this is the glory, because we have peace with God, this is the glory that we can rejoice in. But then, just right after that, in verse 3, Paul says, not only do we rejoice in our future hope, okay, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. You know, I, that's, I think that's a very uncommon thing to say in our day and age. It's a very uncommon thing to think about, this idea of, of rejoicing in our sufferings. Because I know this past year has been a very difficult one for most of us. I mean, our, our, our world has literally been shaken, stirred, turned upside down. And, and I think all of us has felt the loss of the freedoms and the loss of the things that we love. But I also know that for many people, this, this suffering has been much more poignant. Some, some of you have, have faced significant anxiety and depression. Um, some of you have felt loneliness from isolation. Some of you experienced the friction of being cooped up too long with other people. I know in the Chartrand home, we have, a, we have a saying that families like fish, it starts to stink after three days. Usually we're talking about visiting relatives, though. Um, people have lost jobs. People have lost loved ones. I mean, when, when addiction, deaths, and alcohol abuse are on the rise, these are symptoms that people are suffering and you know, when you're in pain, it is, it is very common to just want to lash out because that's a very human response to pain. So people are tired and frustrated. Some are angry. And because of this, I can imagine that it's very hard to hear someone say, rejoice in suffering. I mean, come on, Paul. You've never lived through COVID. But you see, there are, there are many different ways to frame suffering in our, in our minds and in our hearts. I mean, the atheist will say that suffering is meaningless. There's no purpose to it because all we live in is just a you know, molecular cause and effect reality. It's part of the universe we live in. There's meaninglessness to suffering. The Buddhist will say that suffering is an illusion. So the way to escape suffering, we need to learn to rid ourselves of all desires. So no desires means ultimately no suffering. Prosperity gospel preacher will say that suffering is avoidable. After all, I mean, God promises to bless you with health and with wealth. You simply need to believe it. You need to claim it, latch on to it. In fact, maybe the reason why you are suffering is because you haven't believed hard enough, or maybe there's sin in your life. The more common view of suffering in our culture is that suffering is beatable. And, and you'll see this, this version kind of running in popular self-help books or daytime talk shows. Uh, one New York Times best-selling uh, writer called it the Oprahfication of Suffering. It's this idea that, that you have within your very own power the ability to overcome your suffering. And the only reason why you are suffering is because you haven't yet risen above it. So you need to find a way to repurpose your suffering. You know, when life gives you lemons, you need to make lemonade. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think there's some truth to that. 
But you notice in the text that Paul does not deny the reality of suffering. He also doesn't give us a strategy to overcome or remove our sufferings. You see, the reality is that sometimes life doesn't give you lemons. Life gives you cyanide. And sometimes you have no bootstraps to grab a hold of. And sometimes life does maim you permanently and does, in fact, kill you. What I love about the Bible is it is completely open and transparent about the reality of suffering. It doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't deny it. The Bible actually teaches that, that suffering is a natural consequence of living in a fallen world. And in fact, suffering is something that everyone experiences. Even good people experience suffering. And sometimes our suffering clearly has a purpose. But oftentimes our suffering can seem just very, very meaningless. Like in the story of Job. So getting back to Paul, what does he say about suffering? Well, Paul says that we can rejoice in our sufferings. What a puzzling thing to say. But let's look at verses 3 to 4. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So what Paul's doing here is he, he's continuing his thought of rejoicing in the hope of glory. And the reason we can rejoice in suffering is because ultimately suffering leads us towards hope. You'll notice that Paul in the text here, he's kind of carving out a pathway towards hope. He's going from suffering to endurance to character and to hope. So while we are suffering, he says, first of all, we, we, we need to learn to endure it. You see, some suffering can be fixed, but not all suffering can be fixed. It just, it just needs to be endured. And that's really hard for us to get our heads around in our society, right? Because, because we live in a world of instant gratification. And in a world of instant gratification, endurance is a dirty four-letter word. Well, actually, it's nine letters, but you know what I mean, Right? But something else happens, Paul says, along the path while we're enduring suffering. He says, while we're doing that, Paul says, then it, then it produces in us character. Well, what is character? Well, character is a refined soul. It is one that has been molded and formed and shaped into the image of Jesus. One that, that bears the fruit of the Spirit. But here's the thing about character. Character never grows in an instant. It is not microwavable. Character is something that is produced in a person's life over a lifetime. So the other thing about character is that character also never forms in a worry-free, bubble-wrapped, safe environment. Character is forged in the furnace of trials and temptations. And so as we endure sufferings, that produces in us character. Now it's important to point this out, is that this endurance can lead to character, but it does not automatically lead to character. See, when suffering occurs in your life, you really have two responses. You can run away from God, or you can run towards God. You can get bitter, or you can get better. So this character formation ultimately happens when we lean into God in the midst of our suffering. But then what involves from this character ultimately is hope. And in hope, you believe that Jesus will ultimately 
bring a final solution to suffering because that's what Jesus promises. He promises that one day he will return. He will fix everything. His justice will prevail. It says he will wipe tears away from every eyes. He will make all things new. And he will dwell with us forever in a world without suffering. And Paul says that this hope, this hope that's forged in the fire of suffering, it doesn't put us to shame. We're not embarrassed by it. We're not disappointed by it. In fact, Paul says this hope is something that we can rejoice in. It is something that we can boast in. But Paul doesn't just leave us there. Ultimately, he also says, he says, you know, there's actually a reason why we can be so confident in this hope. It's, it's a character-forming reason. It's the reason that we lean into God all along the way. He says it in verse 5. He says, he says, the reason is because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So he says it is actually the very loving presence of God within us that allows us to point towards our future hope, that gives us assurance of our future hope. So if we allow God to fill us with his love, if we allow God to fuel us with his love, as we tap into that, Paul says we can endure suffering. We can actually be formed through suffering. We can experience hope in the midst of suffering as we allow the love of God to be poured into our hearts. So let me ask you this question this morning. How full is your tank with the love of God? Are you running on fumes? Is the tank half full? Maybe the tank's spilling over. How full is your tank with the love of God? Now, some of us, we, you know, in the midst of suffering, you're going to have this, okay? But some of us might have doubts about God's love. In the midst of suffering, you're always inevitably at some point going to ask the question, how can I know, how can I know that God loves me, that he cares for me, that he's for me, that he's with me? How can I know this? Well, guess what? Paul is reading your mail this morning, and Paul has already anticipated the question. Let's look at verse 8. Here's what he says. He says, God shows his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do you know that God loves you? Paul says you need to look at the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus himself suffered, and where Jesus himself died for you. And actually, Paul, in the text, he, he goes out of his way to show just, just how extravagant and outrageous the love of God is. I mean, in verses 6 to 7, he, you, you'll notice he compares three different types of people. He talks about the ungodly, and then he talks about the righteous, and he talks about the good. And he essentially asks the question, if you had to die for one of these three people, which one would you die for? The ungodly, the righteous, or the good? Would you die for a righteous person? He says, well, rarely. Would you die for a good person? Well, maybe. Would you die for an ungodly person and a sinner? Well, now you're pushing it, Paul. I'm, I'm reminded of the 2008 movie, um, The Dark Knight. It, it's, it's the second movie in the trilogy. If you know the story, Batman's up against his arch nemesis, Joker. Joker just wants to see the world burn. And at one point in the, point in the movie, the Joker has kidnapped two very important people in Batman's life. And each of them has been tied up in a separate hidden building surrounded by incendiary bombs. One of these people is Rachel Dawes. She is Batman's childhood friend, sweetheart, one-time love. The other one is Harvey Dent, the district attorney for Gotham City and Rachel's man. What do we know about Rachel? Rachel is a good person, loyal, kind, principled, just good people. 
Harvey is a righteous person. He's the city's white knight, right? He's, he's, he's about to bring reform. He can't be bribed. He's do, willing to do whatever it takes to heal Gotham. He's a once-in-a-lifetime kind of leader. So Batman, while he's interrogating the Joker, he's told that they are locked away somewhere, about to be blown up, and he's told that he has to choose which one to save. And the Joker actually gives him the location of both of these people. Now, what Batman doesn't know is that Joker has actually flipped the locations. And what Batman doesn't know is the Joker plans to blow up the person that Batman doesn't choose. But Batman doesn't know that. Batman simply has to choose. Which one of these two will he save? So does he go with personal gain? Or does he go with the greater good? Does he choose a good person? Or does he choose a righteous person? Let me ask you the question. Who would you have chosen if you were Batman? I know you want to say it. I'm Batman. Okay, but no, who would you have chosen? But this is how extravagant the love of God is. This is how we know how much God loves us. God wouldn't choose the righteous person. God wouldn't choose the good person. God would choose the ungodly person, the sinful person. In the grand scheme of things, God chooses the joker. Which means... He's chosen the worst of these so that he can also choose the best of these. That God chooses to love everyone from the bottom up to the top. He chooses his enemies. He chooses misfits and failures. The people who can't quite seem to get it together. The repeat offenders. The broken. The lost. The addicted. The ones who can't quite keep their promises to God. He shows his love by dying for these guys. Let me ask you this morning, are you one of these guys? So how can we rejoice in our sufferings? Paul says, by looking more deeply into the love of God himself. And by gazing more distantly towards our future hope. This is how we have hope in suffering. And this is what is available to us because we have peace with God. Because we are reconciled with God. Well, finally, we have one more benefit of reconciliation. It's this. Because of reconciliation, we anticipate much more. You know, Paul Paul ends this entire section by providing even more confidence in our future hope. As if we didn't need confidence enough. Paul says, oh, one more time. I'm going to give you some more confidence. And he explains how our future confidence is ultimately based on past certainty. So the reason why we can have full confidence in the future is because Jesus has already done all the hard work and he's already done all the heavy lifting. You notice that Paul repeats this phrase a few times. He repeats the phrase much more in these last three verses. This is a very common Jewish way of making a point. It goes something like this. If God has done the difficult thing, then you know that he'll definitely do the easy thing. So let's say you've driven a thousand kilometers through a blizzard to visit your family. Are you going to turn around and go home because you have to walk 20 meters from your car door to the front step to go inside and see them? No. That's insane. The hard part is done. Of course you're going to finish that journey. Here's another example. Let's say you've risked your life free climbing up a rock face to the side of a mountain. And when you get to the top, you realize there's this last little stretch that goes up through a grassy meadow until you finally reach the summit. Would you quit at that moment? Of course not. The hard part is done. And so Paul asks, when Christ returns, how do we know that we will be saved? 
How do we know that we will have a part to play in this great and future hope? And Paul's answer is, well, that's easy. Because the hard part is done already. Jesus bled, he suffered, and he died for his enemies so that they could be reconciled to God. Now, I, I, I want us to pay attention to this posture, okay? So I'm not going to look specifically in the text, but I want to look at the implied posture that God takes toward us. Did you notice that? That God's posture towards us is a much more kind of posture. If God's willing to do this, how much more is he willing to do? And, and I think this is something that is so important for us to get our heads, our minds, our souls around. It's this idea that, that God never chooses to do the bare minimum with us. God never looks at us and says, ah, oh, that's good enough. You know, I, I don't know about you. Most of, us, most of you, you've worked on a hard project, and you've always had to say at the end of the hard project, walked away, oh, that's good enough. <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about? I, I, I've learned to say that a lot, okay? But what I realize is that if I ever have to say it's good enough, it probably isn't, okay? It's just that I'm willing to lower my standards to get the job done, Right? God's posture towards you is never, it's good enough. It's never, let's do the bare minimum. God's posture towards you is always much more. God never lowers his standards. We, have, we serve a God who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And as we continue going through the book of Romans, we are going to be discovering just what this much more looks like. Just what this much more entails. I'm reminded of the story of the elderly woman who was on her deathbed. She was dying, so she contacted her pastor to come and discuss her final wishes. And when he got to her house, they, they planned this funeral service together. And she had just meticulous instructions about how this thing was going to roll out. Everything from the type of coffin to the songs that were going to be sung to the type of coffee that was going to be served. And when, when, when it seemed like everything was done, the pastor stood up and he was about to leave. And that's when she reached out and she grabbed his arm and she looked into his eyes. And she says, there's just one more thing, pastor. And he says, well, what is it? She says, I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. Of course, there was, there was a moment of awkward silence, right? And then the pastor's like, okay, a fork? I mean, what's with the fork? She says, well, you know, I've gone to a lot of church socials in my day. And I can remember when the dishes were being cleared, the person that was clearing and helping out would often lean over and they would say to me, keep your fork. Now, it didn't happen every time, mind you, but, but it happened often enough. And she says, you see, when they told you to keep your fork, you always knew that something good was coming. That it was, it was cake or it was pie. But if they took your fork, well, you'd probably end up with squares or cookies or, or jello. Pastor, when I'm lying there in my casket and people ask you, why is there a fork in her hand? I want you to tell them something. I want you to tell them what old lady says. You tell them, I want them to know that I know where I'm going. And I want you to tell them the best is yet to come. So Crosspoint, in, in the midst of hard times and suffering, May we anticipate much more 
May we look more deeply into God's love. May we gaze more distantly towards our great and future hope that we might rejoice and boast in our future glory and that we might rejoice and boast in our sufferings. And may God be with us as we do that. Let's pray. We're going to pause for just a moment with every head bowed, every eye closed, and just reflect. You know, as we've been speaking today, this morning, God, through his Holy Spirit, has been prompting each of us in different ways. What is it that God's saying to you this morning? What, what did you need to hear? In our busy lives, it's so hard to find these moments to stop and pause. We're going to give you that chance now. Talk to God about what you heard, what you needed to hear, what you were afraid to hear. Let me give you a couple minutes to do that. Thank you, Lord, that we stand in the grace of God today. Not because of anything we've done or could do, but because of everything you've done. We honor you and we bless you and we praise you. God, I want to lift up those this morning who are struggling to accept that they are loved by God. I pray you'd break down that wall in their hearts and their minds now in Jesus' name. I pray that the Holy Spirit would fill their tank to the max and overflowing. That you would pour on them right now, in Jesus' name, the love of God. And if that's you, you need to receive that. I pray you would open your heart, open your hands and your mind to receive this love of God. And stand in his grace. Lord, we pray, each and every one of us, as we walk these days through these difficult times together, fill us with your love, and may we stand together as one people, and give you thanks now, in Jesus' name. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, 
thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.